The last Metroid is in captivity. The galaxy is at peace. Uh, no wait, let me double check. Welcome to Totally Biased Media, the podcast where three brothers who know nothing about video games tell you everything they know about video games. Metroid is one of the most influential games of all time, even giving way to an entire genre that's still incredibly popular nearly 40 years later. With Metroid Prime 4 on the horizon, Nintendo and Retro Studios have decided to bring Metroid Prime to the Switch. How does it hold up after all this time? Is Metroid still the king of the Metroidvania? Let's find out. I'm Jason, and I gotta ask, why can't Metroid crawl? I'm Jordan, and I'm simpin' for Samus. I'm Jackson, and my Metroid is Other M. And now, let's get into it. We're going to do things just a little bit different with this episode. Normally, we review a game and then we talk about something else in the back half. But this time, we're going to talk about the something else in the front half because the something else is very relevant to the review we're about to do. This time, we're going to play the game for the podcast and review it on stream. That would only be new for one of us. No way. (laughs) Just the first part. Yeah. So basically, uh, we've never actually reviewed a a true remaster before. We've talked about remakes where there are new concepts. It's built from the ground up with new gameplay elements in play. But we've never talked about a game that's just a tried and true remake. And I think there's a lot of different opinions about what a review of a remake should be depending on the situation. I think you've been meaning to say remaster for like half of those. Okay, so so this is a remake. We've talked about a no, lot. No, this of, is a remaster. No, this is a remaster. Jeez, this is a mess. Okay, this is a re. This is this is a remaster. We've only talked about remakes otherwise. So we're gonna talk about how to review a remaster when it doesn't have new content. It's just you know, made to look better and be playable on modern consoles. I think at least like the last three or four sentences all tracked. I can't promise anything before that made even a little bit of sense. So I guess the first thing, what is really the difference here? So when you talk about a brand new game, obviously you can judge it for a million different things. It's appearance, it's gameplay, it's story, it's you know, aesthetic, everything from the top to bottom, you can judge at face value. I feel like with the remaster, there's some baggage, though, because a remaster's job isn't to make a game play differently. It is just to make that game playable, you know, for a new audience. So I guess I'll kind of open this up to you all first. Is it really fair to judge content of a remaster? in the first place the way i see it even as a remaster and with the graphical upgrades and everything like you want to talk about those things but at the same time it's still a game and for a lot of people it's probably you know the first time that they've played the game like i don't think any of us have played the original metroid prime more than just kind of like i messed around with it a bit on the like metroid prime trilogy way back in the day i don't know what happens in metroid prime or i didn't until i played it (laughs) you know just over the last week or two 
Like, I had no real context for what the original content looked like. So I, I think it's fair to review its content, but just keep in mind that it hasn't been changed. And what you're really reviewing content-wise is the original release. Right. So, like, I wouldn't necessarily think of this episode as just being a review of Metroid Prime Remastered. It's kind of a, a review of both the original and the remaster. Yeah, I, th- I think that makes a lot of sense. Jackson, any thoughts? I agree. <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, so, I want to sort of broaden that a little bit and talk about a different game, one that we do have the context of playing it in its original form. And the only game I can think of that's gotten a remaster recently that we all played at least a little bit in its in its original release is SpongeBob <laughs> Battle for Bikini Bottom. And that's a game that's really uh you know has a lot of sentimental value for me. I know Jason and I played it a ton as kids. I've at least seen Jackson play it even though it's been quite some time and I don't think you played it anywhere near <laughs> as much as we did. But Looking at a game like that and playing it, you know, as a kid when it released and then playing the remake or remaster a couple of years ago, I think that's one where it's harder for me to judge the faults of the game today as anything more than just a byproduct of the time it was released. Like, there are things I'm not loving about Metroid. But there are things that I've sort of internalized a bit just because I think for a game that was released in 2002, Metroid Prime was incredible. But there are things about the gaming landscape that have changed since that make it harder to adjust to. Whereas a game like SpongeBob has a lot of that roughness around the edges and it's definitely still there. But I have sort of nostalgia or rose-colored glasses or whatever that still made me enjoy the remaster a lot more. Yeah, I I think that it would be a lot harder for us to review uh, SpongeBob Rehydrated or whatever, just because, like, we spent so much time with the original. But, I mean, on the other hand, the only other kind of... I mean, what would you consider Pokemon Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl? That is a really good one, because I think that, by all intents and purposes... It is a remaster instead of a remake until you get into the... There's two specific parts. They change some of the post-game content and they change the... uh, They added the whole underground thing where you could catch Pokemon not originally in the game. And those are two really important elements, but they're not... They're not a core part of the game like as a story it's it's very strange i think pokemon's always walked a really interesting line with the remake versus remaster thing because i think with the exception of brilliant diamond and shining pearl all of the remakes or all the remasters have sort of leaned more towards remake because they've actually added new content and it's been universally really good content but Mm -hmm. it's still it's still weird because, you know, we played the original. So, like, it's really hard to divorce the experience now from the experience I had as a kid. And I have to say, with Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl, I mean, we played that a little over a year ago. It was, like, November of 2021, I think. 
Yeah. And I, I think that the way that I played the original game kind of colored the way I played it because mm-hmm. I didn't interact with any of the new content really until after I had already beaten the game because like it wasn't there originally. Like I knew what to do. Right. I maybe like having so much knowledge of the original game <laughs> can kind of, uh, color the way that you interact with a remaster and kind of change your opinion on it, regardless of the content of the game itself. For sure. For sure. Pokemon, I also feel like didn't really onboard you for a lot of that. It, it kind of expected <laughs> yeah. you to go towards it on your own. And then right. it was like, Oh, you do this by doing this instead of just being like, did you know you can do this over here? Actually, I think it was sort of the Pokemon games that th- thinking about the Pokemon remakes was sort of what made me want to have this conversation in the first place. Because IGN is often criticized for their review of Omega Ruby and Alpha Sapphire, where they gave the game like a 7.8 or something like that. And one of the cons they cited was that the game had too much water. Too much water? Which, you know what? I'm going to say it. I'm not afraid to admit it. One of my favorite parts about that game, there was so much water in it. This isn't even a joke. I am being real. And see, I had the opposite experience. I think that... I think too much water is a very legitimate criticism of Ruby and Sapphire, but should we extend that criticism to Omega Ruby and Alpha Sapphire is a much more complicated conversation. Yeah, and that is kind of somewhere where it gets really weird, because (laughs) if I have complaints about the original game and they're in the remaster, I knew I was going to have those complaints ahead of time. Right. You know, like I played a lot of Emerald back in the day. So when I was playing Alpha Sapphire, I was playing Omega Ruby and Alpha Sapphire, and I ran into those things that kind of got on my nerves back in Emerald. Like, I knew that they were there, and I expected them, so I just kind of shrugged them off in a way that I don't think I would if I had those same kind of issues with Scarlet and Violet. It's so weird, though, because, like, they couldn't have changed that without it being a fundamental change to the game itself and i know we don't have a lot of context since we didn't play the metroid prime in its entirety originally but to my understanding metroid prime does not add anything it is just improved textures and lighting and load times and stuff like that like it's it is not changed content wise at all and it's just so weird to talk about this you know to review it prop in proper but at the same time i know a lot of major publications that did review it mostly by people that played the original and still gave it pretty glowing reviews because the original was a good game this is a faithful remake so therefore it is a good game <laughs> so yeah i think that if your complaint is something that was present in the original game maybe it shouldn't affect your opinion of the remaster or rating in quite the same way that it would the original game. Yeah. Like you, you brought up the too much water thing from Omega Ruby and Alpha Sapphire. And I think part of the reason that was that review, you know, got turned into a meme and it was such a big deal is just because that was like one of the only things they complained about, but they still knocked off, you know, almost two and a half whole points from the review. Yeah. Yeah, and I, th- I think that that one had a lot of sort of strangeness to it. And that's one of the reasons I'm kind of glad we just don't do review scores in general, because then we can talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly without having to, like, 
line it up with a number and a pros and cons list and stuff like that. I don't know. I just kind of wanted to have this conversation right off the bat. I didn't necessarily want to come to any concrete answers or to ex- or to set like a precedent for how we talk about every remaster in the future as much as just to explain like this is a conversation and this is something that is going to sort of be debated every time a remaster comes out and specifically one that comes out to especially poor or especially positive reviews whereas this one has been incredibly popular across the board i mean i i think it's uh it was like a 90 some percent on metacritic i mean it was almost in line with the original's release the last time i looked at it so very very popular remake even if it does have some stuff that we will get into that wouldn't necessarily people wouldn't love (laughs) in a game that was made today I just think the biggest thing a remaster of a game has to do is just not be a worse experience than the original. (laughs) Yeah. As long as it is in line with the original experience, I think it's good. And I guess if it's a game that specifically had a bunch of problems with it, if it doesn't fix those issues in a remake, then that's an issue. But I think most remakes we're getting are of like beloved classics. So usually, you know, they either already don't have big problems or they're overlooked because there's something else that's even better. One remake I can think of, or sorry, remaster that I can think of that isn't a good remaster is Halo Combat Evolved. The remaster of that sucks. And it's solely because of lighting. Uh, All the sort of like horror-esque parts with the flood in that game are completely ruined in the remaster because it's too bright. And it it actively ruins the experience of the game. Yeah, I would say, like, a remake should take, you know, what was good from an old game, you know, chuck the bad, and, you know, bring in some new ideas as well. Like, I mean, you look at Dead Space, it added the kind of, I guess you might call it, I'm just going to call it like a semi-open world. Like, you can get from any part of the Ishimura to any other part of the ship. Whereas, originally, the game was linear. And each chapter, you could only go to the areas that, you know, were important to that chapter. And then there's the the keycard system, where you... If you're backtracking, you'll unlock, like, new areas that you couldn't access originally. So there's still going to be new loot. And then, on top of all that, they added the, the cool... Um, intensity director which would you know dynamically create new events for you to run into as you're exploring areas of the ship where you've already kind of gone through all the scripted encounters and like that's what a good remake does i think a remaster its job is more just to kind of shine a light on and maybe apply a fresh coat of paint to an already great game like you wouldn't want a remaster Mm -hmm. of saints row 2022 (laughs) like because there'd be no point in remastering that game because like there isn't enough good there to make it a worthwhile experience man that game is so bad you couldn't even remake it you could remake it and the remake would be called saints row the third (laughs) (laughs) and it would take all the good stuff from saints row and it would add in a whole bunch of wild crazy stuff like jetpacks and you know uh I don't know, maybe a bat that's made of a sex toy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, All the stuff that makes an inherently good game. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Every good game has to have those two things. 
Amen. Let's talk about Metroid Prime. So we've already established none of us played this game, at least not for very long when it originally released. I think I might have touched it once or twice on the GameCube and once or twice when it was re-released on the Wii, but that's about it. I never gave it any serious amount of time. I played a lot of Metroid Prime 2 and 3, so I thought this was going to be a little more in line with those, but I can definitely see some stuff that wasn't quite worked out until 2. What's y'all's experience with the the Prime games other than the first? Well, do we want to talk about just the Prime games? Because Metroid's kind of an interesting franchise, because like you have the Prime games, which, you know, they're obviously fairly different being, you know, 3D, but like they share so much with the 2D games. Yeah. I I honestly have to say, and this is kind of getting ahead of us, but like Metroid Prime really is like the perfect conversion of that game. Like I, I don't know what you could do. to better convert the original like 2d side scroller metroid games to 3d and it's it's been a good bit since we've talked about metroid dread so i think we could uh refresh our experiences yeah and for me personally i'm just gonna go out and say it i like 2d metroid quite a bit better than 3d metroid most of the time um which again i've only played two and three and uh it's been a long time but you know i've played just about all of them of the 2D games and adored everything I've played. But with the Prime games, I feel like there's a lot of really great stuff. And like what Jason said, I mean, I think it takes the Metroid formula and converts it to 3D exceptionally well. It's just that something about the vibe changes when it goes from 2D to 3D. It's also interesting to think that Metroid Prime is a spinoff of the metroid games more so than the other way even though i think prime is much more popular and also it's interesting that the metroid prime games take place over like a very small period of time within the greater metroid series where the like the regular metroid games are spaced out over like decades and the metroid prime games take place over like a year or two i think (laughs) in the middle of that but i i guess to get started with my experience with metroid prime it's not entirely dissimilar to yours. I played... It, I mean, I had the the trilogy for the Wii at some point. Um, I guess it was at my dad's house, because I have no idea where it is now. <laughs> um, but I played a little bit of the first one, a little bit of the second one. But, I mean, my attention at the time was pretty... Uh, pretty fixed on metroid prime 3 mostly just because it was the newest one and that's Mm. really all i cared about at the time (laughs) yeah um it was the shiniest one and it looked the most fun and it had that cool section in the beginning where you where you you pull levers and stuff in samus's ship (laughs) (laughs) i love Uh, metroid prime 3 but it's so like edgy and i know that a lot of people it was not as popular because of that like kind of dark and gross vibe it kind of had going with the whole corruption thing but i was Mm -hmm. way into it at the time my experience with the metroid prime games is i saw the announcement for metroid prime at e3 2019 metroid prime 4 you mean oh yeah Yeah. 4 sorry sorry when metroid prime 3 was announced i was probably like six that's yeah you were younger than that i think 
Yeah, it was 2007. I don't I Yeah. Yeah, I would have been maybe not even four yet, most likely. But my, my history with the franchise as a whole, um, I played Metroid Dread when we reviewed that back in good old 2021. And, like, I had my issues with it, but I did enjoy it. Some of the stuff I came around on somewhat eventually. I still hold my ground for most of my complaints. Um, I did also play Samus Returns when it got remastered for the 3DS back whenever that was. We still have that? Um, By the way, yeah, I've been looking for a copy. I do still have that. Nice. Let's keep this in the <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, not, not too much experience with the Metroid games. I played the uh, the Metroid party game on Nintendo Land on the Wii U. That was pretty good. Yeah. Because there was the, the person with the gamepad that like ran around like Samus, I think. And then everyone else with the, the Wii and the Nun, like the Wii remote and the Nunchuck. Or no, 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 it was the opposite. The person with the Wii U gamepad was in like a floating spaceship and their yeah. job was to, you know, kind of uh, both take part in the battle and also kind of coordinate the people using the Wii remote and the Nunchuck. And they were all running around like in power armor and fighting from the ground. I don't know why I felt the need to explain what the mini game was, but it was good stuff. Honestly, <laughs> Nintendo yeah. Land as a whole was just pretty good. It's no Wii Sports Resort, but it is a pretty good package. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that it, it's really good at kind of giving you an idea of what you can do with the Wii U. It's obviously... False sense It's of not quite as... I mean, I think the problem with Nintendo Land is that its target audience is people that are already really into Nintendo, when the whole purpose of like a pack-in game like that is probably to convince people to be interested in Nintendo. <laughs> like, yeah. Wii Sports was was just regular sports. They weren't like throwing Mario and Zelda and, uh, you know, Pikmin all over the place. But Nintendo Land, it was just like, I don't even think there is a Mario-themed minigame. I think it's like a hide- No, there's the hide-and-seek one. <laughs> there's a Luigi's Mansion minigame, but not a Mario minigame. That sounds about right, yeah. And then the highlights are stuff like the Legend of Zelda one. I miss good pack-in games. You just don't have those these days. One two switch should have been a pack in a game. It also should have been good. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, that too. We'll play it next time you guys are over. I mean, I've played it. It's bad. I know. <laughs> like the game where you you count the number of rocks inside of your your uh, Joy-Con. <laughs> Riveting stuff. <laughs> anyway, what were we talking about? <laughs> Metroid Prime. <laughs> yeah. So let's kind of get into. Metroid Prime as a whole, because I think that if you're unfamiliar with, you know, we we mentioned it before, the Metroidvania genre, it can be a little bit odd, and it admittedly doesn't sound the best on paper, but basically the idea is that the game takes place in at least a partially open world, it's, it's normally pretty big with an emphasis on exploration, and as you explore, you'll find certain doors or items in the environment or certain enemies you just can't interact with correctly yet and at some point in your journey you will find an item which will let you open that door or fight that enemy or interact with that item and then you have all the areas you've previously been to to go back and explore to find where you can use that new item so it basically is like a almost like a recursive map design where you have like a big open starting area and then it branches off in a lot of different directions based on 
what items you take where and when and such. So it's a lot of exploring, a lot of upgrading, and just a a ton of backtracking, which normally is the part that makes or breaks these games. It's what breaks it for <laughs> me. Yeah. I don't I don't think backtracking is inherently bad. My issue with it in the Metroid games, something that I really noticed in like Metroid Dread, is you'd have a really big new area that you would get to explore. And like all around the place, and when I say all around the place, I don't mean in easy to get to places. I mean in like places where you have to take this specific route that takes like 10 minutes to get to the end of, and then you just have to open one door and right inside that is like five extra rockets. (laughs) Yeah, so I actually, I think Metroid Dread did it exceptionally well. Because Metroid Dread, you were constantly getting to new places you had not been previously. But you would occasionally backtrack. But generally speaking, when you backtracked, it would be through new routes you didn't previously access. So if you made it to area, I don't know, 7, you might have to go back to area 5, but you're going to take a different route you didn't previously go through. It's not to say you couldn't go off the route looking for items, but the critical path of the game didn't have you backtracking in terms of taking the same routes as much as just going or ending up in the same locations, which I really, really loved. Yeah. I think that's kind of a big difference between the way Metroid Dread and I'm sure just like the newer Metroids in general kind of handle this versus Metroid Prime. Because I feel like Metroid Prime backtracking really relies on you remembering things that you'd run into previously in a way that, like, the 2D Metroids don't quite need as much of. Sure. Or at least, Mm -hmm. like I said, the new ones. Like, they try to make it clear, like, instead of backtracking and literally taking the route that you just took to get somewhere, you're going to be taking an entirely new route, like you said, that's going to take you through familiar rooms. But that route is going to make it pretty obvious which room, at least, you need to be looking around in. Yeah. And Metroid Prime kind of gets around this by having uh, kind of a hint system built in. If you stand around too long or if you're making no progress, then it'll pop up and be like, hey, you should you should check out what's going on over here. Yeah. Um, Metroid Dread doesn't really need anything like that because it's the way that the game kind of sends you through all of the maps kind of naturally takes you to those places. Yeah, and like all my criticism with backtracking in Metroid Dread is mostly with finding like extra items. When it came to like progressing the story, I thought it was fine. Metroid Prime, though, I. The first like big area you get to explore, I feel like once you've been through every corridor once, you got to go through it like another five (laughs) times just to get to the first boss. Yeah, so. There are only five distinct biomes in Metroid Prime, and you will make it to all five biomes very, very quickly, but you're going to be back in each one multiple times. Generally speaking, between having to backtrack to get to a new location and then trying to figure out where to take the new power or item I got, I pretty much went to every biome to look around for a bit every time I got a new item. And it's something that I both really appreciate and also found myself frustrated with because I think it did a really interesting thing in letting you see the different parts of the game so early 
but not shoehorning you into going to them like like there wasn't just one line you were following the whole time like there was some actual exploration and some actual trying to like figure out what needed to happen but i do still feel like it happened a little bit too early and a little bit aimlessly I definitely found as the game went on, I was definitely getting my bearings better, and I was also just doing better about remembering where I had encountered certain items I could go back and interact with. But in the beginning, it definitely feels feels a bit jumbled. Yeah, like I was saying, it definitely expects you to kind of keep track of the uh, the stuff in the environment that you can't you know fully interact with. Like you run into a ramp fairly early on. And you're like, oh, well, how am I going to get... Like, there's nothing I can do with this for now. So you leave. And then you get the morph ball and you go back. And uh, you still can't do anything there. It was actually a trick. You need to get another upgrade for the morph ball that you probably didn't even know was going to be a thing. I think my issue with it isn't even that it happens. It's that it's the frequency that which it happens. It is constantly happening. <laughs> I think yeah. that that's just kind of a part of the genre honestly that you either have to accept or just kind of understand that the genre is not really for you (laughs) yeah for sure i mean i'm not trying to be like gatekeepy with that i just mean like a big part of metroidvanias is the backtracking it's remembering kind of the weird stuff you ran into along the way and then kind of keeping a mental note of when you're going to be able to go back and take care of those things and I, yeah. I think that, like, that is a lot to ask of the player. Like, you know, why isn't there a game, like an in-game journal of any kind that kind of keeps track of this kind of stuff? I said kind, like, several times in that sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, like, why, why isn't there an in-game tracking system for these, you know, walls that you can't break yet or these doors you can't open? That's also something that's sort of strange is... Some stuff does get marked on the map. Like, if you try to open a door you can't, you'll be able to view that even if you're in a different location. But there's other stuff that just inexplicably isn't mapped. And then other stuff where it doesn't even look like it's something you could destroy or get through with a certain item yet. So you don't even really have that concept of what you were looking for in the first place. This is kind of, I guess, a late game semi-spoiler one of the artifacts that you have to find to get to the final boss is just hidden behind a completely unmarked wall um Mm. like jackson complaining about it in dread was one thing Mm. because like the wall was (sighs) it's not (laughs) it's not marked but like you come into a dead end after you get the missile try shooting the missile at the dead end but like this is literally there is a marked cave nearby that you can go into. <laughs> and for some reason, they just didn't mark the one you need to go into for the critical path. Yeah. Which I think that that's always something that the Metroid game has sort of had to walk a little bit and they haven't always done well. Because sometimes, I think like with Dread, they did give you at least a little bit of telegraphing so you could at least know like the general vicinity you should be trying out an item. Metroid Prime, I haven't felt that as much. And I think that's something that largely works better in the 2D games, just because in a 3D space, there's just more around you. There's more things that it could be hidden behind. There's, you know, in in a 2D space, you can see, generally speaking, you can see the whole room on one screen. 
Whereas in a 3D space, you're going to have a floor, ceiling, four walls that are all going to have their own depth and height. And it could be anything in that could be the part that's a destroyable wall. And it's just, it's hard to know if you've checked every nook and cranny because the level that Metroid wants you to go for that is different than other games. That being said, that's something I know they do better in 2 and 3. Because I got lost in this game playing it at 28 28 years old. I made it through 2 and 3 playing them as, like, elementary and middle schoolers. Like, you know, those age. So, like, I know that they do something between this game and the next one that makes it easier to figure out where you're supposed to go and what you're supposed to do. I don't remember if it's map stuff or if it's just better... Uh, more inviting clues in the world or what but like there is definitely something that changes metroid prime 3 might straight up have pings on the map for the story stuff that sounds correct because i i remember that being a game with confusing maps but i still never like truly got lost in and i feel like if i was playing the game at 12 or whatever i probably would get lost in most games a lot (laughs) Yeah. yeah I think that that's where most of my issues with the game stem from though is how things are hidden and how you're expected to find them. But I I think, like, by and large, everything else about it's pretty dang impressive. Especially thinking about the scale of this game when it was originally released on the GameCube and seeing how much they've upscaled it with the new graphics. I I was expecting low-effort, bare-minimum graphical improvements. But I think as far as remasters go, this is one of Nintendo's best. Like, it it looks very good. It looks like a brand new game. Yeah, let's put it this way. This is one of the best looking games on the Switch, and it can run at 60 FPS. I, I think that there is a lot of really positive stuff to say about this, just in that original camp of remasters should be faithful. I think that as far as a faithful remaster goes, this knocks it out of the park on all fronts. Because the game is unchanged, but it looks and plays much better. Speaking of how it plays, though... <laughs> uh. The original release, you know, on the GameCube, which did have a dual stick controller, but generally speaking, the C stick wasn't used the same way that a second joystick is used on modern consoles. So in Metroid Prime originally, you had to, like, you couldn't aim and move at the same time, at least not in the traditional sense. Whereas now, you can do the regular first person shooter dual stick controls, which I think are a godsend for most of the game. Absolute game changer. And then you go to a boss fight. It does trivialize some stuff that was previously difficult in, or things that probably would have been difficult in the Metroid games. It was something that I experienced with Metroid 2 as well, where a lot of the time an enemy's opening is incredibly obvious. It's just a matter of getting there, getting into a safe spot, and then aiming to shoot. Whereas you can do all those things at the same time with dual stick controls. So generally speaking, you can just fly through a lot of this stuff. Like the very first encounter in the game is with a boss that I'm sure would have been significantly more difficult with the original GameCube controls just by virtue of the fact that it had like spinning barriers around it. Whereas in this game, you can just be moving with the rotation of the barriers and shooting them constantly. Yeah, the Parasite Queen fight at the beginning is absolutely trivialized by it. I think the fight with the giant plant fairly early on is also kind of trivialized by it that one's still Um, frustrating but for different reasons (laughs) yeah 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 i i mean like it's definitely a lot easier than it was in 2002 it's a it's a different fight 
because of, you know, nothing was changed about the encounters except for the fact that Samus is just incredibly mobile now. Yeah. I think the, the strafe controls are kind of a little weird. Um, I, I get, I want to say like a relic from the era kind of, but it, it is weird when you're locked on, it kind of completely changes the way you move around enemies. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's really cool and useful sometimes. And then other times it causes you to, you know, fall into a pit of lava. <laughs> Yeah, like sometimes I just want to jump normal even while I'm locked on, and the game does not let you do that. <laughs> that said, now, I think that like the weapon variety and all that is really cool in this game. Uh because I mean Metroid's always had several different weapons, but I th- I think the way that Metroid Prime kind of handles them and gives them all their own individual charge shot is really cool. And then on top of that, they have like a special fire mode. Like, you know, your your default beam weaponry has the uh, the super missile, but your, I forget what it's called, the, the blue or purple energy beam, the wave, wave beam. beam. Yeah. yeah, it has like its own special fire mode where it's like a continuous beam of energy that locks onto enemies. And I, th- I think that's all really cool to use and it kind of changes the way that you fight at least like the bosses in kind of an interesting way. It's also really good for clearing out a room. Like if you get the plasma cannons flamethrower upgrade. (laughs) Yeah. But I also think it's really cool. Like the different touches they made to the way that Samus's arm cannon looks when you have the different weapons equipped, I think is really cool. And like when you're charging up the weapons, like specifically the ice beam, when you charge it up, like her arm gets covered in ice. Uh, And when you're charging up the, uh, the regular or no the the plasma cannon like you can see heat kind of emanating off of it it's all really cool stuff and it looks really good and it's like you know kind of cool immersion immersion stuff that you just don't see in a lot of games normalize immersion in video games (laughs) yeah something that no other games are going for (laughs) that isn't something i should have to ask i think that there's a lot of stuff about metroid that you know, th- th- I mean, there's a reason there's a whole genre that sort of came from this now. And yeah. I think that Metroid always did it, did it best in one way in that, you know, I love Castlevania. I love Hollow Knight. I th- And honestly, I think that Hollow Knight and Castlevania Symphony of the Night might be better than any of the Metroids, barring maybe Super Metroid. But at the same time, those games had more natural progression. You got the red key to unlock the red door or you got someone whose job was to do a thing to just do that thing. Metroid's always a bit more creative than that. You never just get a key. You get a you type get a of gun, gun. <laughs> yeah, or a certain type of bomb or missile. And it always made it to where like, yeah, that's kind of ridiculous when you think about it. But at the same time, it made it to where you naturally felt more powerful by just being able to access more of the game. And that, I think, is something that can that's something that really keeps me playing a game because Mm -hmm. I like to get incrementally more powerful. And I think Metroidvanias always do that better than just about any genre. We love when number go up. Metroidvanias, though, really, it's more than just number go up. Like, oh, it's it's not the same at all. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that that's something to be respected, even though I do love games like Borderlands and Destiny, where it is just number go up. 
I, I really like the way that it's implemented too, where the game doesn't necessarily just tell you that like the purple beam opens the purple doors. <laughs> I mean, it makes everything kind of clear and obvious visually, but then it'll also kind of challenge the player to kind of mess around with their different, uh, you know, the different items in their kit to try to get through different walls. Like you see a cracked wall, you obviously know you're going to get need to go through it. But it doesn't necessarily mean you just need to shoot it with a missile or even the super missile. Like sometimes you need to hit it with uh, a charge blast from the the wave cannon or sometimes you'll run into a giant rock and it doesn't tell you what you're going to need to do to get past it. And maybe it's maybe it is the super missile. Maybe it's the super power bomb or whatever. (laughs) It kind of challenges you to actually know what the different items in your kit do and challenges you to kind of keep up with that and it's constantly adding new items for you to kind of play around with too uh i was gonna say and and sometimes you run into uh, a cute weird little monster thing that isn't gonna attack you but you don't know that so you uh, immediately shoot a missile at it yeah i think you can kill everything in metroid prime it's fine you never encounter something that's truly friendly in this game, people or monster. <laughs> yeah, nothing to worry about. Yeah. Uh, everything is, it's a hostile alien planet. So it's so it's all good. Yeah, destroy as many people and things as you want. I always... Imperialism is fine. That's the official totally biased media <laughs> stance. Um, I've always appreciated one thing about Metroid that I think Prime does especially well in that there is a lot of environmental storytelling and there's even like options for stuff to read in terms of data logs and stuff that can lay out some history. But almost everything in the game is told to you through just the world. Like there is, there are very few actual cutscenes, but you still feel like Samus is going on a journey that has some meat to it, even though she never like stops to talk about exactly what she's doing or why. And I I really appreciate that a game can do that without having to constantly be telling you what's happening, which we've seen with every game that's come out lately. <laughs> I think the game has a bit of an over-reliance on the scan visor. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. that that's probably a fair fair assessment. But I still think I prefer that to Samus just constantly explaining what's happening. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is, like, you could definitely play through the whole game like get from point A to point B and you know fight all the bosses and everything with the exception of maybe the final boss without you know scanning everything but i there is like a lot of kind of exposition that just gets dumped on you all at once especially once you get to the uh the space pirate like labs it's just everywhere and i don't know i feel like I wish they could have worked maybe I don't I don't know where exactly the line is, but I do feel like if you want to get the full story and like actually know what's going on, you need to at least read like all of the space pirate logs and the Chozo logs that you'll find on walls in kind of important areas. It can get to be a bit much, especially sometimes you'll go into a room and there'll be like 10 things you need to scan and read. And each one is like, couple paragraphs which it's like it's not a lot of reading all things considered but 
it is just a complete and utter stop to any progress or like any momentum that you might have had. <laughs> I don't know if that's handled better in the sequels. I'm sure if there were stuff like that in the sequels, I didn't read them. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure I will if we get the remaster for if the you, next two. If you weren't reading the logs, or if you weren't reading the uh, the scan visor stuff, and you weren't scanning like everything important that you run into, I don't necessarily know if you'd know like what was going on on the planet at all, yeah. other than what the space pirates are doing. Right. Which even that's kind of vague. Definitely wouldn't be able to get all of the artifacts. Yeah. I mean, like, maybe, you know, 100 monkeys at 100 typewriters. <laughs> <laughs> you might luck into it. But, like, you're not going to be able to follow the hints that it gives you or anything like that. Yeah. I like I like changing the phrase from infinite monkeys to 100 monkeys as if uh, writing Shakespeare was something that could just be done. <laughs> That like that like uh, there's a one percent chance that a monkey's gonna write Shakespeare. <laughs> well, you need so you need the hundred monkeys and the hundred typewriters all in the same yeah. room. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then like one of the typewriters. I'll have Hamlet yeah. at the end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's how it was meant to be said. <laughs> uh, sorry, that was a a little bit off topic. Um. Yeah, I just I think that. You know, I'm sure if we get a Metroid Prime 4, if it actually happens, who knows at this point, I would imagine if storytelling will be a little bit more akin to Metroid Dread, where there are some like points where the game actually stops you and shows you stuff, but I, I, I have a hard time picturing a version of Metroid that's very narrative heavy that doesn't suffer for it. I mean, that's sort of what happened with Other M to my understanding. Other M was a mess. I don't think any of us have played it, but I've seen enough cutscenes from it to tell you it's a mess. The Wii got some buck wild games, especially later in its life, where it was trying to keep up with other consoles, which were having much bigger and more story-focused games. And the Wii just couldn't accommodate that, especially not with its like existing characters and stuff. So I feel like we got some weirdly story-heavy versions of characters that were previously not that i feel like there's going to be a lot of early nintendo wii games that people will like look back at fondly forever but there will be significantly less late wii games that will have the same effect i think it's really weird that they decided to take you know the metroid license away from retro studios yeah because i feel like everything they did with it was at least like good yeah I think generally people say that like the quality of the Prime series goes down as you go, uh, or at least that three like isn't quite as good as two and one. Right. But like I don't know why they decided to give Metroid to Team Ninja and then just shelve it after that. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense to me. But we're not in the industry, which is kind of a big part of our brand. <laughs> so I try not to speculate too much about like why one studio makes a game versus another because i feel like there's always so many weird reasons we would never even think of well i'm just saying like retro studios is clearly so passionate or at least you know they were I, you know they haven't this remaster was also done by retro studios so i guess i can say like they've they've clearly shown that they're passionate about the metroid universe and like making interesting games i mean metroid prime series was basically all them you know like 
It it just seems weird after three, you know, really good games to take it away from them when they were clearly like so passionate and so capable. You hate to see it. But I am really excited, especially after seeing this remaster and like the changes that they've made to the original Metroid Prime. Visually, yeah, you know, I've looked at a, quite a few comparisons. I kind of I only really have my memories to go on for the original Metroid Prime. Uh but you know, I've seen like a few comparison videos online as well. And like it's really good looking and the things that have been updated and changed in like major ways are clearly people that really care about Metroid and want to make the most like beautiful games they can and tell interesting stories. I'm really excited to see what happens with Metroid Prime 4. For sure. For sure. I'm I'm hopeful that that will be coming in the next couple of years. I I'm thinking like by 2025 because they've clearly invested a lot in this because it's not uncommon by any means for a game to get years into production and then get scrapped, but they clearly have a lot invested in this if it gets years into inve- into development, gets scrapped and then started over. <laughs> Like, that makes me think they have very high standards for what Metroid Prime 4 could be. I wonder if they're going to remake Metroid Prime 2 and 3. I sure hope so. I wouldn't even necessarily need it to be, like, a remaster on this level. If they could just add the twin-stick controls to those games. Yeah, I think that would go a long way. I don't care about the graphical upgrade. Like, I just want twin-stick controls and those two games to be on the Switch. And I don't don't think that's too much to ask for. (laughs) No. No, I would imagine what will probably happen, if I had to guess, is that they will both get remasters sometime between now and Metroid Prime 4's release, but I could be wrong. Nintendo has certainly surprised me before, very recently, with the release of this game unexpectedly, so who knows? Who knows? Which was a a cooler surprise drop, this or Hi-Fi Rush, in your opinion? I mean, I enjoyed Hi-Fi Rush more, but I also really love the metroid world and it's really cool to finally get my hands on this game so it's a very hard thing to compare i think hi-fi rush is going to go down as like one of the greats though i think it perfected a genre that a lot of studios had tried to like dip their toe in but just never quite committed to and like you know metroid's already sort of made its mark but hi-fi rush was was really exceptional well folks there you have it a review of this week hi-fi rush yeah, 10 out of 10. I recommend Hi-Fi Rush to anyone with ears <laughs> and thumbs. Oh, that's an important one. Yeah, yeah, it, that's, a, that's a big one. Jackson, any final thoughts on Metroid Prime? You want to get out there? Yeah, Um, I have to say, better than Forspoken. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I like the character dialogue a lot better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but no, I, I have not played too much of this. I have not even beat the first boss. Um, uh, I said, I, I would say that I plan to play more of it after I still have not played dead space since we reviewed it. Um, so I got to finish that first. <laughs> it's good. Uh, it's, I've got my gripes with it, which just seemed to be something with Metroid and probably Metroidvanias as a whole, but I do like it. Can I, you know, I have to say, Dead Space is maybe maybe the game that left, like, the biggest impact on me of just 
I want to know more about this game and its world and its universe. Yeah. It did a really good job of getting you interested, but not like doing it with, you know, cliffhangers or dangling some sequel out. Like it was, it did a really good job of creating a fully realized, fleshed out world, letting you explore it in a reasonable way, in a reasonable quantity, and then just naturally making you want more. That's something that games definitely struggle to do. I think it's something Metroid does really well as well. Um, mm-hmm. Because I think that there is a ton of information here about like who Samus is and her background and the group that she works for and all that stuff. And like, you know, the space pirates and their whole deal. I don't, I don't think you learn too much about like who she works for. I think that's mostly in the sequels. Yeah. No, I mean, not in Metroid Prime specifically, but I mean like the Metroid oh, series. Yeah, yeah. Where, like, there is a lot of really intriguing stuff that's out there, but it's never, like, you're never hit over the head with this idea of, like, well, there's going to be a sequel that's going to tell you about Samus's boss, and they used to be a space pirate. And, like, there's none of that. My favorite part's the end of each game, where you're like, all the Metroids are dead. (laughs) We did it forever. Hooray. And then the next game, they're like, oh, we found some more. I feel like it must be really wild being Samus uh, because, you know, all of the journeys we've been on with her have involved Metroids. But, like, I'm sure she's out there doing regular bounty hunter stuff between. So, like, she'll go a couple years where, like, it hasn't really been on her radar and they she just gets called up by her boss and they're like, well, you're not going to believe this. <laughs> she's just like, let me guess. It's a Metroid. One. One Metroid. Yep. Just one. No more. And I'm sure it's going to be just like the previous Metroid. Nothing is a little bit different about this one. I guess my thoughts on Metroid Prime. Um, As the only one here that beat it, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a good game. I think that it runs into a little bit of kind of a wall near the end when it just tells you if you want to progress you need to go backtrack through the entire game and find these 12 hidden artifacts and like i'd already found a few of them by that point but it was still a little annoying with how much backtracking i ended up having to do because some of it is getting into like weird areas where the fastest way to get there is actually to go through these other two maps on your way (laughs) And you go to one of those maps twice because it's just faster. But I guess it's also kind of interesting how many different routes that you could possibly come up with to get to any given area on the map. It's kind of a cool part of the game that you you do get to actually like figure it all out on your own. And a lot of that is memory based because the map in the game is not great. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think that this was something we touched on it very lightly talking about Dead Space. Dead Space it used to have a 3D map just like Metroid, but in the remake, they changed it to where you could just cycle between the different floors and you would only see one floor at a time. And you could kind of see like a faint outline of the floors below you. But these 3D maps, they're always more trouble than they're worth. There's a reason we don't use 3D maps in the real world. Yeah. It's just because like our brains are kind of hardwired to understand 2D maps in a way that you're never going to be able to get with a 3D representation. (laughs) That's kind of beside the point, though. (laughs) Yeah. The game is still 
really good, even if I do have kind of these really minor gripes about a game from 2002, essentially. (laughs) It looks great. Like, the remaster was incredible. And the new control system, especially, is just an absolute delight. And I think it's, like I was saying earlier, it shines a light on an already great game and gives it a new coat of paint. So I would say the Metroid Prime remaster is uh, really good. I would recommend it to anyone. Would you recommend it to people that played the original and didn't like it? If you played the original and didn't like it in 2002, yes. If you played the original and didn't like it, yeah. Um, No, I mean, if you didn't like Metroid Prime in 2002, or... Sorry, if you didn't like the 2002 iteration of Metroid Prime or even the remake that they did for the Wii or the remaster, I guess, there as well, you're not going to like it here either. So you wouldn't recommend it for anyone. Yeah, that's just it, guys. I caught him. Jason's a liar. I would recommend it for anyone, but if they gave me additional information afterwards... We got a lie. I would recommend this game. Fine, Jackson. I would recommend this game to anybody that didn't already inform me that they don't like Metroid Prime. What it really sounds like and what Jackson caught you saying as hard as you're trying to backtrack now is that you think that people that didn't enjoy Metroid Prime aren't people. (laughs) (laughs) They're subhuman. Trash. Yeah. Yeah. For my recap, I'm going to pull a page out of Jackson's playbook and say, I agree with the things that have already been said, because I have very little else to contribute to this. I do plan to finish it, maybe not right away, because I'm in the middle of so many games, but uh, I've, I've enjoyed my time with it for sure. And I think that more than I've necessarily loved playing it, I appreciate getting to see what the game was, because... The series has evolved a lot, and generally mm-hmm. in pretty positive ways, but it's still really cool to see what it's come from. I think this is probably the Switch remake slash remaster that I was most looking forward to. Like, I, <laughs> I've i been trying to get a hold of a copy of Metroid Prime Trilogy for the Wii for quite a while, and every time I run into one, it's overpriced, like $100 overpriced. <laughs> So I'm glad that I can at least play one of them on, you know, new hardware without paying an arm and a leg for it. Yeah. I guess if they release all three at the same price point, I probably will pay about the same amount that I would have paid if I had just, you know, gotten like a $120 copy of Metroid (laughs) Prime Trilogy. But even then you wouldn't have been able to play it on the Switch, like the convenience of that. And I'd be stuck with the the motion controls, which... They're good some places, and they're very bad in others. I wouldn't pay an arm and a leg for it, but I would sell my feet pictures. Thanks. I wouldn't pay an <laughs> arm and a leg for it, but I would pay one arm and one leg per game. No, one arm and, like, half of a leg per game. Oh. Whatever whatever makes it add up. I guess a third of a leg. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well... I think that that's already plenty of Metroid talk and we still got to pull the plug. So I think it means it's time to pull the plug. I forgot how I do the intro to that. Pull plug. Now you should leave it in just like that. Pull plug. Pull that plug. Jackson, 
What is something else that you've been into? So the past few weeks, I've been watching The Walking Dead. Uh, but that show that show is too scary and violent for a six-year-old to watch. So when I was babysitting Hayden the other day, uh, I started watching Loki again. I gotta tell you, why can't all Disney Plus Marvel shows be like Loki? Loki is so good. <laughs> I don't think there's a single other Marvel Disney Plus show that I'd rewatch other than maybe Falcon and the Winter Soldier. I'll do you one better. Why is Loki? <laughs> no. That's it. Jason's head is pulling the plug privileges removed today. <laughs> Thank God. Um, yeah. But <laughs> Loki's very good. It definitely holds up uh, after, you know, only two years. Um, it just makes me mad because Loki did the best setup for where Phase 4 could go and this entire new saga, whatever they're calling it these days. Um, so far, the only thing they've done with that is Ant-Man. And that's not good. Ant-Man's not good. We haven't, I don't think we've talked about that on the podcast yet. Um, Ant-Man makes me glad we stopped doing movie reviews. Be- because you, you don't want to talk about it? It would just be us bashing it the entire time. Because it's bad. It would be what I'm doing now, but for an entire episode. It was specifically bad in a way that would have made me angry to talk about. Yeah, because Loki did a lot of really good setup, just mostly just in like the final episode. Like it did some did some stuff the other episodes, but they set up the whole like the single timeline being fractured in the multiple and all the different Kang variants being released. And the only thing they've done so with that so far is Ant-Man. I think the bigger issue is that like the end credit scenes used to pay off really quickly like next movie quickly it like the end credit scene in iron man is just like they're making a hulk movie yeah <laughs> you should go watch hulk and the end credit scene in doctor strange is just like hey here's this new character we've never met she's got a crazy adventure she wants doctor strange to go on with her anyways no idea when that's going to get paid off. Yeah, most of the post-credit scenes usually pay off within like the next two or three movies. I can't think of any that have paid off so far except the Black Widow post-credit scene. I I think what I'm saying is more just like it didn't necessarily matter in phase two and three because like we knew Thanos was coming. Yeah. But now it's just kind of annoying. And also with Ant-Man, it's kind of weird because it's like, oh, are the Avengers going to have that many issues fighting Kang. I mean, Ant-Man just took one out. <laughs> yeah. Spoiler alert for the the hit Marvel Cinema's movie Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantum Boogaloo. Uh but yeah, uh I'm very excited for the second season of Loki. Um the post-credit scene in the final one in um Ant-Man was a clip from Loki season 2. Which is actually coming out this year, surprisingly. Usually now, if there's a post credit scene, it means the movie or whatever comes out like 10 years from now or something. I just, I just like Owen Wilson. Yeah, Loki season one, great bond between Loki and Mobius. Uh, Sylvie's also a very good character. <laughs> it's it's just, it's a very good show. Um, 
definitely my favorite of any of the MCU shows and very excited for the second season later this year. The first season ends in a very good place. Set it up. It set up a lot of stuff for the next season and the MCU as a whole. And at least the second season of Loki will do something with that. <laughs> um, Hopefully. So that's that's me this week because I couldn't talk about what I've spent most of my time doing because we review it in two weeks. Um, you can figure that one out on your own. Uh, but anyway, I, I actually I don't know what it is either. What what is it? It's Destiny. Oh, that's in two weeks. Yeah. But Jason, what have you been into? Well, I had mentioned the past couple episodes, I think, that I've been watching Breaking Bad. And I finished it, and it was great. Really good show. I'd recommend it to anyone. After I finished that, I decided I would start Better Call Saul. Because uh, I still hear great things about Better Call Saul. And the last season, I believe, just aired and finished. Uh, So I got the whole show that I can go through. And let me tell you, Better Call Saul is really good <laughs> uh, in both a lot of the same ways as Breaking Bad, but also it does enough new stuff <laughs> that I think it really keeps it interesting and it doesn't just feel like kind of retreading the same ground. It kind of focuses on uh, Saul Goodman, who's introduced uh, fairly early on in Breaking Bad. Uh, as well as Mike Ehrman Trout, who is played by Jonathan Heck Banks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it, it kind of follows them before the events of Breaking Bad, you know, kicked off. Like quite a while before, I believe. Is he the one that said, Well, I better call Saul? No, it's actually kind of funny. I'm on season three and he still isn't he still has doesn't go by Saul Goodman. <laughs> That's an alias? It, it's kind of funny. Yeah. Uh, because the show is, I guess it's kind of more setting up to how he became Saul Goodman, the lawyer that he was in Breaking Bad. Uh, and it, it starts way before he starts that law firm. <laughs> hmm. It's really interesting. I like the Mike stuff better. I, I love Mike. Jonathan Banks is incredible. And... Every scene he's in is really good. I loved good, him so. in the hit show Community season five. Yep, that was that was what he was best known for. Mike was probably my favorite character in Breaking Bad as well. So, I was it was a, definitely a pleasant surprise with how important he is in Better Call Saul. Um, because he, he pops up in like one of the first couple of episodes, but he doesn't really do anything until like midway through the first season. Hmm. But he's he's in a lot of it. Like there are episodes that don't have, you know, Saul in them. I've commonly heard Breaking Bad regarded as the best show ever made. And I've also heard a lot of people say that it's actually better called Saul. What do you think so far? Uh, I'm not finished with Better Call Saul yet. You know, I'd like to hold judgment just a little bit longer. Amen. Uh, I do have to say, at the part of Better Call Saul I'm at, it also has Giancarlo Esposito in it, and I love him. So, I think something I've kind of discovered watching through Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul is just that like there are so many incredible actors 
in the show. <laughs> like, people that I love to see absolutely anytime, and they're all together, and it's incredible. Especially considering how closely together I watched Breaking Bad and Malcolm in the Middle. Because, <laughs> like, I had this very firm idea. I mean, I, I assumed that this is what they were going for when they cast... Uh... Oh, why am I blanking on his Brian name? Brian Cranston. Yeah, when they cast Brian Cranston, uh, he's talked in interviews. Like, if Malcolm in the Middle had gone for one more season he wouldn't have been in Breaking Bad. Like, that new season would have shot at the same time as Breaking Bad. I I have to wonder if there was any part of the casting director that was just like, it would be pretty crazy to put this guy who plays an absolute goofball in Malcolm in the Middle as our, like, incredibly serious male lead in Breaking Bad. <laughs> because it, it it'll give you whiplash. It's honestly kind of hard to believe that the performances are the same guy. Even having watched them like so close together. Maybe especially having watched them so close together. I love the part where he goes, Jesse, we have to cook the meth. I love the part where, uh, you know, Walter White shows up and he breaks bad all over the place. But anyway, Jordan... Uh, what you what you been up to? What you been up to? What you been up to? Okay, this is a weird energy going into this. So, I actually want to hold off on talking about most of the things I've been really into because I'm really close to finishing a TV show, I'm really close to finishing a book, I'm playing games that we're going to talk about on future episodes. So, I'm going to talk about a game from a little bit earlier in the year that I just, I really don't want to be totally looked over. So, I thought, like, if I don't talk about it now, when will I? That game is Theatrhythm, Theatrhythm. I don't know 100% what it is. Uh, the Final Fantasy Rhythm game. I'm going to say Theatrhythm because I think that's right. But for some reason, my brain wants to break it down as Theatrhythm. Basically, this is a rhythm-based JRPG that's sort of a celebration of Final Fantasy and its incredible music because the Final Fantasy series definitely has its highs and lows, but the music is always top-notch. And this is not the first time that they have made a rhythm game based on Final Fantasy. I mean, it's the fourth just in the Theatrhythm series plus some other older stuff they've done in the past. And it's something I've always been into but I think this is the first time that Theatrhythm has like really hooked me because there is so much on display here. There's like 400 songs. There's like a hundred and some playable characters. They've broken up the game into a much more uh, focused sense of progression. There's all sorts of missions that require certain team compositions or characters or ability types. And I think the game has just done something really smart where it has turned hours upon hours upon hours of music into a really engaging game all the way through. Because I think that, historically, these games have been really great rhythm games and pretty bad RPGs. And I still wouldn't say that the RPG side of the game is exceptional by any means, but it's definitely a lot better than it's ever been. So, basically the way it works is, you have a string of notes that are coming at you from across the screen, you just 
press a button or swipe in a certain direction or hold a button based on the type of note it is. You know, think Rock Band or Guitar Hero or all the way back to, you know, Dance Dance Revolution. That very simple rhythm game structure. But every time you hit a note, one of your four characters who you can choose from the roster of characters from basically every Final Fantasy game. Uh, every time you hit a note, one of your four characters will do an attack. If you hit a certain string of notes, like, you know, if you hit 50 of a red note, then Cloud will do this crazy slash attack that does more damage. Or if you do, you know, a hundred of this swipe note, Terra will do this really powerful magic blast. Like, it, it does a really good job of never letting that RPG stuff get in the way of it being a good rhythm game. But they finally have sort of an engaging quest system where you have to defeat a certain number of enemies or open a certain number of chests or just score a certain number of points that wants you to emphasize having the best possible team for the situation. And it's the first time that I've really invested in that side of the game at all. I think for both of the previous games uh, that I've played, I've just had like one team of like my four favorite Final Fantasy characters and I've just never used anyone else. Whereas in this game, there's like a hundred characters and I already have like a third of them up to max level because I've just been, every time I finish upgrading one, I immediately bust out another one and start trying to figure out what they're capable of. And it does a really good job of letting you do that, but it never distracting you from just playing along to really good music. So I think that it's, it's really exceptional. This might be like the most narrow casted game in history. <laughs> um niche is an understatement to say the least but i think as someone who's a big fan of final fantasy and as a big fan of rhythm games it pretty much knocks it out of the park so if you like those things absolutely check it out otherwise just ignore everything i've said for the last two or three minutes have you thought about how um final fantasy keeps releasing what are essentially like celebrations of the Final Fantasy brand. Yeah. Basically since 2007, whenever the uh, the original... What was the fighting game one called? Dissidia. <laughs> yeah, whenever the original Dissidia came out. Uh, but they haven't made like an actually good mainline Final Fantasy game since 2006. It's really weird to think about how different Final Fantasy is today than it was in its inception. Because it used to be this right-over-the-plate, stereotypical, turn-based JRPG. And from, like, Final Fantasy XI on, every installment has just been wild. And I think some of them have been exceptional. I think Twelve is the best game in the whole series. And I think that even the ones that suck, like Thirteen, still have some really cool ideas and some really incredible vibes. I think the the funniest part of Final Fantasy 13 and its two sequels is just like how much of the legwork it was doing trying to set up kind of a lasting narrative between all of the Final Fantasy games and then they made 15 and they're just like nah let's not do that one. <laughs> yeah. Everything like about the whole thing about crazy. like the crystals and different universes being tied to the crystals or whatever and yeah like he was trying to set up this whole thing of like all the final fantasy games exist in their own universes but they're all part of this one grander universe and then they were just like what if we didn't act on that anymore <laughs> what if this next one you drove a car 
Yeah. Uh, you know, speaking of Final Fantasy, we'll we'll absolutely do an episode on it, no questions asked. But like, I'm really excited for Final Fantasy 16. The more I've seen of it, admittedly, it's not all been great. But the more I've seen of it, the more I've just been like really clamoring for that fantasy, like high fantasy RPG. And it's really getting back into like the swords and sorcery root of Final Fantasy. And I'm really excited to see that. I love this more sci-fi aesthetic of 12 or this modern day road trip vibe from 15. But I'm really excited to see like knights and princesses and magicians and all that stuff coming back as like the focus and like the theme of Final Fantasy again. Isn't that I'm, I'm and Final of... Fantasy 7, um, whatever the remake sequels called um reduce reuse recycle one of those i don't know something like that um, <laughs> yeah. aren't those yeah. both coming out this year they are this is good this is a good year this is a good year for final fantasy fans no kidding i mean theatrhythm which obviously not as big of a release and then final fantasy 16 in the summer and final fantasy 7 r2 in the winter so like that's gonna be wild and crisis core wow. just came out in december yeah, but no one in the whole world's played that, I think. I've yeah, genuinely not spoken to anyone that's played it. I love the original. For some reason, that one just totally fell off my radar. I mean, I was planning on buying it as close as, like, the week before it came out, and I just never did. Uh, the reason it fell <laughs> off was because Christmas. Same. Well, yeah, you know. Theater Rhythm is also going to have DLC for, like, Chrono Trigger yeah. and stuff like that, which I think is really neat. Yeah, I was I was almost wishing for a Kingdom Hearts DLC, but then I was like, I guess I just played a whole game of that. Yeah, it did kind of have its own thing happening with Melody of Memory, but it is kind of cool to see them recognize series like the the Chrono games and um, Children of Mana, and I think even Near, Near? is going to be introduced. Yeah. So seeing them recognize those alongside mainstays like Final Fantasy VII and X and Twelve is very cool. Yeah, I'm, I also like that it includes like Final Fantasy VII Remake. Yeah, and Crystal Chronicles and Dissidia yeah. and games I love but weren't necessarily like were traditionally left out of these series wide celebrations because they weren't like a mainline game. Yeah, I don't even think the last Theatrhythm had Theater Rhythm. I, I don't even think it had the thirteen sequels. Yeah, I don't. I don't believe so. I think this game. This game does a really good job of giving everything its due, and I really appreciate that. It's not to say games like 13.2 or 13.3 are going to be as like revered as like a Final Fantasy X, but at the same time, you know, there's a couple songs from each, and there's some characters from those games. Like that's cool either way. Yeah, theatrhythm. It's it's good. Uh, it doesn't look that way. Uh, I was staying with some friends over the weekend, and I don't think I've ever seen them like look as bored as they were watching me play this game. And that's after watching Jason watch me play Power Wash Simulator. <laughs> so I'm not saying it's an exciting <laughs> game from the outside looking in, but it's a lot of fun. I was watching you play Power Wash Simulator as someone that has also played it, and I was incredibly bored. <laughs> yeah. Uh, streamers, we are not. Except for when we are. <laughs> yeah. But I think that just about does it for another episode of the Totally Biased Media Podcast. Uh, if you would like to reach out to us, there are a whole bunch of ways you can do that. 
First, on Twitter at TBMcast. Second, on Instagram at Totally Biased Media. And third, at our email address, totallybiasedmedia at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your suggestions for the show or your review of recent release games. We're going to try to be a little better about being upfront about what we're planning to review in the future so that you can reach out to us and give us your thoughts beforehand so we could potentially read them on the episode. So, if you are playing Destiny 2 Lightfall, please let us know how you're feeling about it. We've already played some, have some pretty pretty complex emotions already, but we would love to get some more takes besides our own for the next episode. If you're playing so, Destiny 2 Lightfall, please be my friend. I'm playing Destiny 2 Lightfall. Someone else? Oh. <laughs> but... For the Totally Biased Media Podcast, I'm Jordan Walkup. I'm Jason Simmons. And I'm Jackson Walkup. And you just felt the bias. I tried to do like a like air horn effect, but it didn't turn out well. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Goodbye.